Welcome, everyone, to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. One of the big ideas in my book is that students can design their own education experience. They can take charge of their experience. They can do more than navigate. They can create the time they spend at college to find belonging, to find a career path, find each other. That said, I'll be the first to admit that college is hard to navigate. And it's particularly hard to navigate when there's a lot of confusing systems and technology and terminology that are hard for anyone to understand who knows what a bursar is, who knows what a registrar is. But they're particularly hard to understand and to navigate if you're new to higher education. For instance, if you're a first-gen student and you may not be familiar with all that terminology and all these things you have to navigate. And this is what's often called the hidden curriculum. So I am delighted that today we have an expert on the first-generation student experience, someone who was absolutely instrumental and insightful in the first-generation student chapter of my book, Dina Waitrobe-Stafford from the Center for First-Generation Student Success at NASPA, here with us to talk about the hidden curriculum and what students can do to learn it, why this is important, so they can not just navigate but create their best experience. Welcome, Dina. Thank you, Elliot. Happy to be here. Why first-generation student success? Why is this an area that you're passionate about? How did you get into that? Yeah, it, it's an identity that I share. So as we think about the first-gen definition, it's important to consider a definition that reaches a number of identities. At first-gen, we should talk about the intersectional identity. I, an international student from Canada, came to the U.S. to pursue my educational experiences, also play college soccer. And I also transferred from one institution to another. So and thinking about just the barriers that I experienced coming to a country, learning many of the things that I didn't know, especially navigating a transfer experience on top of that, there was so much that I didn't know. The statement, you don't know what you don't know, it's true. And it was my experience. And because of that, I felt a responsibility to support others with similar experiences, to create environments that were welcoming and celebratory for those who share the first-gen identity. And so that's why first-gen student success matters to me. And it's why I get to do what I do on a national level at the Center for First-Generation Student Success. That's awesome. What position did you play in soccer? I was a goalkeeper. Or maybe you still play it. Oh, you, you were the goalkeeper? Yes. Me too. Awesome. I think yeah, I play indoor. It's been a while, but I couldn't get on a field and play 11 v 11. It's way too much ground to cover now. Yeah. Indoor is pretty intense too. I remember my indoor experience. It was generally getting shelled at close range from, from a lot of people. That's still the case. Sometimes some lessons need to be learned by others. And I'm um, very happy to be the teacher in those environments, but it's fun to continue to play. It's also a great way to remain active too. That's awesome. Do you think being a goalie has shaped what you're doing in higher education in some way now, your approach or your stance? Yeah. When I played, it was so important that I had an understanding of the game, but also so many of the tactics because I felt that I started our attack with possession. I, I managed the pace in which we played depending on whether we were high pressing or whatever the particular tactic was. And so my ability to see that and plan far in advance really has influenced the way that I create processes 
now as I think about the end and then work backward to create the necessary steps. So yeah, it has definitely influenced my perspective professionally, but also has helped me think really critically about the why and then the subsequent what. That's great. Yeah, I feel like my my job as a goalie was so much about like seeing the big picture, seeing the whole field and communicating, maybe over communicating with people about what's happening and what to do and when to do it and, and why to do it all in real time, sometimes at the top of your lungs. Definitely some lessons, some leadership lessons there. So thinking about all the great work that the center does to help first generation students, I'd love to dig into this challenge, potential challenge with the hidden curriculum. Tell us a little bit about what's meant by the hidden curriculum and maybe share a story of a student learning and getting over this barrier. So as we think about the hidden curriculum, just language in particular, it's, you can't see it, right? It is a secret almost, right? And so until you unlock what the secret is, you're not able to speak the same language or have the same understanding. And so something that we talk about frequently is the language we use, oftentimes abbreviations and shorthands. We use an acronym for a building and we only talk about in maybe a website instance what the building name is, but in a syllabus we use a shorthand. An example I can offer is when I was campus-based, one of my students was really late to class on the very first day. This was their first year, their first day, lots of nerves involved, but they were late because what they understood the building name to be was not abbreviated, but the syllabus used an abbreviation for the class location. The student didn't know where to go. And as a result, they were late. And when they got to class, finally, the professor made a remark to the student about their being late and that they need to respect everyone's time. And, you know, it's not a great way to start. And the student was really upset and didn't know how to respond in the situation because they felt that they were in the wrong, that they made the mistake. When I finally connected with the student, I didn't want to go to class the rest of the day for a number of reasons. They were deeply upset. But could you imagine being in an environment that is entirely new? You think that you're going to the correct location. Now you're late. It becomes an alienating experience. And because of that, it could have been completely avoided had we used a common language, had the student been more aware of what the shorthand meant to be able to then navigate to the correct location. That initial experience will never leave that student's memory and also framed future experiences in thinking about interactions with professors and how they could approach a professor. So I bring this back to language alongside the hidden curriculum in that we assume that there is a common language. But if we use shorthands and abbreviations and, you know, whatever other acronym for the same building or the same thing, experience, whatever we're referencing, if we only published what all of that meant, how we could align this resource with students to ensure that it was a common language and not just assuming that folks understand that this acronym and this shorthand mean the same thing. Yeah, I feel like th there's probably also maybe a bit of grace and some assuming positive intent that uh, the professor could take on too. I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of like, you know, when somebody has their video off on Zoom, you know, one way to interpret that is they're checked out. 
and they're, you know, multitasking and they're not paying attention. You know, another way is that that person, the person with their camera off is actually the most engaged, most committed person because they're still connecting despite, you know, something that's going on on their end, you know, whether it's something in the background, they're have to eat lunch during the call, whatever it might be. I feel like assuming positive intent was also helpful in these situations. So if students are trying to learn this secret, clearly there's some work that colleges and universities can do to close this gap, right? And I I feel like higher education as a whole, we're trying to catch up to who our students are and what they need and how best to support them and not think about, you know, their deficits, but be, you know, be student-ready colleges, not bemoan the lack of college-ready students. But in the meantime, you know, how can students close this gap? What should they do to learn the hidden curriculum to learn this secret? Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning student-ready versus college-ready because the direction of responsibility is important. Colleges and universities have a responsibility to ensure that they don't continue to impose increased barriers to access and success in higher education. And with that responsibility, accompanies an audit of all terms used across the institution, acronyms, abbreviations, shorthands, all of these terms that are used interchangeably and creating a resource that students can then utilize. The other part to that is ensuring that students are aware that this resource exists. So thinking about the application process or orientation or even a residence halls, that there's reference to this jargon guide to ensure that a common language is understood and then practiced. And then on the student end, it's to use the resources with the understanding that they know that the resource exists. And this is really important. We can create all the resources that we believe students will benefit from. But if they don't know where they are, they don't understand how to access them, those resources in their mind don't exist. So we have to create ways that there's a handshake between what the resource is and how students then access and use those resources. So bringing it back to the responsibility of student-ready versus college-ready, institutions must work to ensure that these resources are available to students and that students know how to use them so that they can benefit from what the resource is. So it sounds like step one is go to a student-ready college. And I know your center has a way of recognizing first-gen friendly institutions, right, that are following best practices. What's that called? So within First Scholars, we have close to 300 institutions who have achieved the first-gen forward designation, have been active in First Scholars for a number of years. And these institutions, they can be found on our website, but these institutions are committed to first-generation student success. They think intentionally about the admission process and recruiting first-gen students to ensure that these students understand what resources exist at their institution. They're thinking through learning communities and first-gen residence halls, creating community and sense of belonging for first-gen students. They're thinking about internship opportunities and other career readiness opportunities to ensure that post-completion First-gen students have the skills, have been given the tools post-completion to then pursue their career. There are a number of these institutions to select from, and they're doing such incredible work. That's great. So start off, go to a place that's first-gen forward or first-gen friendly or is a student-ready college that creates resources for students to bridge this gap and in the meantime is avoiding unhelpful or secret or coded 
language and terminology and processes. And then on the part of the student, it's really to dig into those resources and then ask, you, you mentioned orientation, RAs, are there other folks, you know, that can be resources when students have questions and they're scratching their head and saying, you know, what's the bursar or what does R mean on this calendar or that kind of thing? Yeah. Our academic advisors are a great resource and every student is assigned to an academic advisor. So professors and faculty, they're wonderful resources. That's where our students spend the most time within their classrooms. And so using them, asking questions of them and ensuring that they can ask the question often is a challenge, right? We might feel a sense of embarrassment when asking a question, but asking questions, is, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of inquisition, like that you have a yearning to learn. And we need to celebrate that as opposed to making folks feel that it's a detriment or a weakness that they didn't know the answer to a particular question. It is a sign of strength. That leads me to why is this important? You covered some of this already, because when we think about that student that had that awful first day of class experience, learning that hidden curriculum removes one of these barriers so that you feel welcome, so that you can succeed, and that you can be asking questions, which is a sign of strength. Why else is this important? Why is it important to unlock this secret or decode this language? Well, if we look at the data, more than a third of all college-going students identify as first-gen. That's a huge representation. And if colleges and universities thought about that and really focused on that student-ready mentality and made the tactical shifts to ensure that there was access and that there was a common language spoken at the institution, then right off the bat, first-gen students would be able to navigate with greater ease and they wouldn't have to experience so many barriers. And so you know, dismantling what is the hidden curriculum is so important that we continue to reframe our own mindset and our own assumptions around what college-going students know about their progress to degree completion, what they understand about the drop deadline or drop withdrawal deadline. We have to ask ourselves how many assumptions we're making because alongside those assumptions are students who continue to face barriers, which prohibits their ability to proceed. And so it's really important that we ask ourselves about the hidden curriculum and how we can dismantle the ways in which it's prohibited to academic success. Absolutely. Final word of advice for first-gen students trying to learn the hidden curriculum? Ask questions. Ask all the questions. It is because of these questions that we can understand the ways that we've created barriers. But what's more is that it's a valid question. They're all valid questions. It also leads to some really neat connections between students and faculty, between students and students, between administrators and students. So always ask questions. That's such great advice. And I feel like not only do those questions help you, but they help other students because it, it reveals the gaps in understanding that then the institution can work on. Thank you, Dina, for your time, for your insights today, and for all the great work you do at the Center for First-Gen Student Success at NASPA. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book. Mm -hmm.